This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. I had started that turn towards Frederick, and at that point, the engine made a sputtering sound that definitely opened my eyes and my wife's eyes. So I immediately increased full power to the airplane, and uh, the plane didn't like that. It, it, it sputtered a little more, so I pulled a little power out, and uh, at that point, I declared an emergency. Welcome to another edition of There I Was, a podcast where we put you in the cockpit with pilots in demanding situations, and we learn how they flew out of them. I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Today, we have an exciting episode and three guests. Andrew Drew Ryan started aviation as a naval aviator, flew for the Marine Corps, H-46 helicopters, and also flew King Airs and Citations. He's amassed over 5,000 hours of military and general aviation flying. He owns a Cicada Tobago TB-200, and that's the airplane he was flying in the story he'll share with us today. Fortunately, on the other side of the microphone, he had two controllers, both of whom hold a private pilot license. Eric Lomascolo has been an FAA controller for 25 years. His brother, David Lomascolo, happened to be on duty with him that night. He has a private pilot's license also and has been a controller for 15 years. And combined, the three of them worked their way out of a pretty tense situation. Gentlemen, welcome to the There I Was podcast. Thank you, sir. I'm glad to be here. Thanks. Good to be here. Thanks, uh, Richard. Appreciate it. Well, this turned out to be a pretty tense situation, Drew, that you were in. And thankfully, on the other side of the microphone, you ended up getting some help from the controllers, both of whom had private pilot's license, so they have some experience themselves flying, and longtime controllers, one of them 15 years, one of them 25 years. So do you mind, Drew, kind of set the story for us, if you will. Where were you going and what happened? Absolutely, Richard. So, uh, you know, flying as a, a private pilot, a little bit different from the military and actually a lot more freedom. We use our airplane like a commuter vehicle. We have children who are uh, a son who's a, a student in Pensacola as a flight school. I have another son who's an RPI up in Albany, New York, and my folks live on Long Island. So we frequently make trips outside of the, the D.C. CIFRA. Uh, up to uh, Long Island, Albany, down to Florida, South Carolina. So this happened to be just a, a kind of a normal, everyday kind of thing. Uh, 16th of January, uh, took off from Brookhaven, Long Island, uh, went uh, north to drop my younger son off in Albany for school, shut down uh, there in Albany, fueled the plane up, and, uh, you know, rechecked the weather. It, it was, you know, suboptimal. I, I'm I'm a big believer in checklists and uh so, you know, I, I go through my, uh, my I'm safe. I, I look at the, uh, the weather and obviously coming to D.C., you, you need to file uh, either an IFR or a, an SFRA flight plan. Uh, so we had planned to stop for dinner. 
which was going to give me the opportunity to recheck weather uh, winds and no temps and that kind of thing. So we departed out of Albany a little after three o'clock. Beautiful day in, in, in Albany with a little bit of weather front moving, uh, you know, through uh, the Frederick, D.C. metro area, you know, still looked uh, like it, it was you know, challenging, but, but, but passable conditions. I knew I was going to stop for dinner and uh, either make a decision to file just a SFRA uh, or IFR flight plan. So Drew, let me interrupt you. I may have missed it. What was your intended destination? You were going from 22 November and your intended destination was Manassas? Yes, sir. So initially that was not my intended destination, right? My, my initial destination was going to be uh, York, Pennsylvania to go get some dinner uh, and then refile. What I ended up doing was actually uh, changing under VFR conditions, right, uh, to 22 November, uh, honor there. I filed at that point an IFR flight plan, uh, check weather, winds, no TAMs, and then uh, just took off IFR out of 22 November with the intent of going into Hotel Echo Foxtrot Manassas. I got you. So you were taking off of Albany and you were going to stop for dinner and you end up diverting kind of kind of more or less diverting into 22 November for your stop there. And then the flight where you had uh, the challenge was from 22 November, Jake Arner Airport into uh, your home of Manassas. That's correct, sir. Yes, sir. I, I, I diverted myself into 22 November to uh, to reassess the situation, file an IFR flight plan and uh, and just get a little bit better situational awareness uh, just because I could see the conditions were degrading. And, uh, you know, nobody likes to be in that. I did actually uh, talk to the controllers, you know, up in in Pennsylvania specifically uh, about the freezing level as well and the conditions and indicated to them, you know, I want to stay at the lowest uh, altitudes possible in compliance with the IFR clearance. And they they were they were very helpful up north as well as I as I proceeded to come down. Got it. So what altitude did you file for coming out of uh, 22 November? I believe I filed for 4,000 feet, sir. Okay, got it. Yeah. So you filed for 4,000. You're intending to just get home and get into Manassas. You know there's some weather out there, and you know it's going to kind of be an issue, but you're assessing, you know, I'll stay low. I'll stay underneath the problem parts, the icing, and what you, based on the forecast. And so there you are cruising. That's that's factually correct, yes, sir. And as I, uh, I, I got to say, it had to be almost exactly 4 o'clock p.m., uh, crossed uh, the Pennsylvania into Maryland, and uh, and conditions were now uh, suboptimal. Uh, I was not getting any ice accumulation uh, on the aircraft. The aircraft was operating normally, but I had made the decision. Uh, Talked to my wife. I said, "Hey, you know what? We're going to divert." And about what position were you? Uh, I'm following along with you on four flight here. About what position were you when you made the decision to divert into Frederick? I would have to probably go back and look at look at the track, the ground track within uh, you know flight aware or flight there to see so where it was. But I, I think I had to have been you know at least twenty miles. I mean, I just crossed the border. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So you're about maybe twenty miles northeast of Frederick. <laughs> I can tell you in my mind, it seemed like a hundred miles, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. yes, sir. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, we all know that feeling. So you're, you're maybe just south of York, Pennsylvania, a little bit more and you decide, okay, uh, this is deteriorating worse than forecast, worse than I anticipated. I'm just going to divert into Frederick. Correct. And as I did that, I think that was my first conversation, you know, again, the, the small details, uh, you know, just get eclipsed, uh, you know. So I, I had started that turn towards Frederick. And at that point, 
the engine made a sputtering sound that definitely uh, opened my eyes and my wife's eyes. So I, I immediately, you know, the aircraft was already warmed up. I immediately increased full power to the airplane and uh, the plane didn't like that. It, it, it sputtered a little more. So I pulled a little power out. And uh, at that point, uh, I declared an emergency with Eric on the radio. Okay, interesting. So your your engine sputtered. You don't like it. You go full power. It sputters even more. Correct. And so you realize I've got some kind of engine problem here. And you immediate at, at that point, you you had been talking to controllers, your IFR, obviously, and you immediately tell them you're declaring an emergency with an engine problem. Correct. Wow. Okay. And then, uh, to my recollection, Eric came back with the standard uh, stuff, you know, um, you know, souls, uh, all of that, asked me if I could accept, uh, you know, I asked for vectors to the most applicable. I didn't have the, uh, the Frederick approach plates up at that point. Uh, so, uh, you know, he basically uh, gave me the longest runway with the best conditions that, uh, that he saw at that time. And I was, I was more than happy to accept that help. I, I can tell you my conversation with my wife in the airplane was uh, how calm Eric's voice was on the radio to me. And, uh, you know, you do kind of go into a quiet mode when you're trying to troubleshoot single pilot. And my wife is not a pilot. Uh, you know, she did help me flip through the checklist. I immediately executed the, uh, the icing uh, checklist as a precaution. Everything was already set in that case. And, and I did, in fact, select the alternate air just to ensure that I didn't have an intake ice accumulation or something in the front that I was unaware of. The airplane uh, has a brand new propeller, a brand new three-bladed propeller. Uh, so this is my first trip with that airplane, that propeller. So I can tell you the sounds in the airplane this whole trip were a little different. So again, not having all of those things aligned, making the sounds, doing the things that I was like, I, I suspected that uh, the engine was having some type of air intake problem that was, you know, I, I was unable to determine. Uh, basically, uh, as I started my turn into Frederick, and I, I definitely said this to Eric on the radio, I don't know what happened, but the turbulence, I, I started getting bumped crazy up and down in the slushy snow. So let me ask you this. That's a, you're in a Cicado Tobago uh, TB200. Normally aspirated engine, right? A fuel injected engine. It's fuel injected. Okay. So car, carb ice, really no factor. There you're no, fuel injected. No, no carb ice. And um, uh, I have, you know, the, the air intake system is right there, right under the center of the propeller. Yeah. Um, a little, you know, straight on. Okay. But you kind of eliminate that right off the bat by going to your alternate air source, right? And that alternate air source uh, on the Tobago, that will bypass that normal air induction? It, it will, sir. And it'll, it'll yeah. help, uh, obviously, increase that airflow uh, into that. And, uh, you know, I want to say that it was nominal. To me, it, it uh, didn't do much. You know, the conditions it. at this point now are starting to deteriorate. Yeah. Before we get into that, let me just clarify. So you go in and the engine starts running rough. You add full power. It starts. It, that does nothing. In fact, it seems even worse. You select your alternate air source. Doesn't help at all. Maybe minimally, you said. You're in IMC conditions. Was it snowing? Or was it sleet? Or what kind of conditions were you in? Sorry, it was it was a slushy, you know, mix. It, it was sleet. Obviously, yeah. it was uh, it, it was dark. You know, I did have the flashlight out and the emergency lights on just as a, a practicality. There, the engine yeah. was full rich. You know, mixture was full rich. Prop was full forward, and uh, it was just a as I increased power on it, it, it it just didn't seem to like that. As I brought the power back, it seemed a little more stable. I can recall having my wife pull out the checklist for me and running through that. 
And do do you remember what did the what did that checklist say? It seems like really good coordination with you and your wife here. On is that the way you guys fly? And she follows you. She backs you up on the checklist. And she you backs guys, me you got, up on the checklist. She she patiently listens to me while I do my I'm safe and my verbalization of everything uh, on the radio every single time. And so the icing procedure there is a uh, cabin temperature is as full hot. It was already full hot. Uh, the pedo heat is on. It was already on. The demister, which is the defogger in the plane, that was on full hot. It was actually cranking out really nice warm air. The alternate air source was pulled, and uh, and the engine, uh, you know, the procedure is to increase the power, uh, which I did, and uh, to periodically uh, circle the the RPM a little bit to make sure that there's no ice buildup on anything, and then obviously uh, to to turn into it immediately descend to deal with the emergency. Okay, so. Right off the bat, you suspected ice because of the conditions, the roughness of the engine. That was that was your first suspicion. That that was my first suspicion. I, I did not think yeah. it was a mechanical, you know, issue with the airplane. So so I executed that checklist and then had her bring up the engine failure and flight checklist to be run next. At this point, did you have enough power to maintain level flight or was the power insufficient enough that you were beginning to worry about that? I was, so I think in my mind, I was beginning to worry about that. You know, I started getting bounced around pretty significant. And uh, so now, you know, in your mind, you're not sure, am I getting some moderate, you know, chop in this snowstorm or is this the airplane, you know, something's not, not right there. So I think from that perspective, I suspected that there was a limitation, this slushy stuff, uh, you know, potentially uh, causing some problem with the airplane. You know, I, I just, I wasn't sure at that point. Okay. And you're on an IFR flight plan this whole time. All this is going along in your cockpit. And pretty quickly, you reached out to ATC and said, I got a problem, potential engine problem, need to go to the nearest suitable location. And at that point is where Eric chimes in. Eric, welcome and tell us from your standpoint i'm sure you were controlling multiple airplanes i think it was january 16th so you know we're in the height of the winter short days this is happening at around four o'clock p.m or so so it you know with with overcast it would be kind of dark join us eric like how did how did this come to you and what was going on in your world when you heard this call so initially he checked in and uh he's coming in for uh manassas and we were already discussing how he was going to make, where were we going to take him to in Manassas? So which runway? Because the ceilings were starting to drop, but the winds were at such a point that even for Manassas, that he should have landed a, a different direction. So we were already talking about how we're going to route him and where we're going to put him, you know, in the flow for uh, Dulles. And shortly after that, that's when he said that he needed to divert to Frederick Airport and... Uh, I notice that the altitude is already starting to descend. He's already out of 4,000. He's maybe at 32 or 3,300 feet. So instantly we had to look up what was happening at Frederick, the current weather, the conditions, because we had nobody laying there for hours. So we were very unsure about the conditions of the airport as far as has it been treated, delayed to ceiling and visibility, the winds there. So we got the information, passed it on and uh, determined that he should land the ILS-23, which is, you know, the best runway for it, the conditions and the visibility and the ceiling. Yeah. So noticing that he left the altitude for, and he, he might be at 32, 3,300 feet. I turn him away from the airport's 
more like a southbound because he was routed over hyper and had frederick in his flight plan the vor and then down towards manassas so i turned him away from the airport but i didn't want to turn him too far away because i noticed he already you know he already mentioned that he started he ingested ice into the engine he believed at that time okay so turn him out try and get him as low as we could and as close as we could for a legal approach for the ILS-23 and a Frederick. Yeah. So it was, it was at that point where you don't want to take him out too far because he's already losing altitude and it seems like his power on, on the engine. Drew, did you drop from 4,000 to 3,200 because you couldn't hold 4,000? I was getting bounced around pretty hard and uh, I, I have an S-Tech autopilot that's very, you know, it's very stable. And mm-hmm. I have only had a kickoff twice uh, flying and the autopilot, it was so violent that the autopilot kicked off. And uh, so I think that just getting bounced around like that probably was the reason for that. And that obviously, Eric in his comms, you know, he, he gave me that turn. He did uh, indicate that he was getting the conditions for me at Frederick. We had a little back and forth on the ILS 23. So now you can imagine I'm single piloted, right? I'm trying to. Uh, I want to get the correct stuff up onto the display in the airplane. I want to dial up the nav aids. I want to do all of that stuff. I cannot take my hands off the controls because it is that bumpy. Mm. So you're really in a tight spot here because your engine isn't performing correctly. It doesn't have full power. You're in some pretty good turbulence to where it's hard to even manipulate your buttons and get your control set because it's all hands on deck to fly the airplane. And you're setting up for what you know is probably going to be an approach pretty close to minimums. All all that's going through your mind? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, in in the Navy Marine Corps, we we have a really good relationship with our controllers. We we practice some pretty challenging maneuvers and procedures. And, you know, I try to stay current with practicing some of the harder things. And it realized when Eric gave me that initial turn to start setting me up. You know, from old school Marine Corps, I normally look up and look at my wet compass to make sure that my my wet compass and my my DG are talking. It's obvious uh, when I when I made that turn and I, and I blew through the heading he assigned me, even though my compass card said that I now realize that with the engine, sometimes at a lower power setting, my DG was now slow to respond with the vacuum system. Got it. So essentially, I had an undeclared failed card situation. I had just told him, hey, you know, my cards failed. And, uh, you know, let's do no gyro turns that that probably would have been more efficient. Uh, You know, I know we're not debriefing that part, but I I probably could have communicated better as a pilot once I recognized what my instruments were saying. Yeah, that's interesting. I'd like to hear from Eric on that. If he had have communicated that to you, is there is there anything you could have done? You know, we used to do these no gyro approaches when I was in the military. Is that something civilian controllers can do also to help GA pilots? Yes, it is um, it's something that we are trained to do. Yeah. But at that time, we had no indication that that was an issue. Right. Yeah. So you just knew. If we yeah. would have known, it's, it's kind of one of those situations where you would take him out further away from the airport. But it's kind of one of those situations, too. You're taking a guy away from the airport with the engine problems. So. Yeah. So for our listeners that may not know, a no gyro approach is if your heading system is uh, inaccurate or you can't rely on it, you can request that from the controller and they will just tell you start turn, stop turn, start turn, stop turn. And they'll give you the direction, of course, too, while you're on a uh, while you're on an approach. 
very helpful and a, and a really helpful option if you lose your gyros and you have no heading system. So that's what we're referring to here. So Eric, but you know, back to you. So you just know that here comes this pilot, he's in distress, his engine's not operating properly. He says, you know, it's ice and you're trying to get him down to Frederick to runway two, three as best you can. Can you walk us through kind of the end of that and how David gets involved in the scenario? Okay, so we go through the first approach and uh, he goes through the localizer. We thought everything was gonna be fine for the, I don't know if it's the, the timing, uh, like he said, down in the localizer and all that information happened, seemed to be relatively quickly, or at least it seemed like that way. We didn't know if that was an issue. I don't think it's till the first approach that he missed that we knew there was more of a, he said he was really getting bumped around. And it may have been even the second approach. So the first one, he goes through the localizer, we cancel his approach clearance and take him out to the uh, east for another approach go out a little bit further and uh, come in south of the localizer. And uh, he blew through the second one as well. And that's when, to us, that's when we, the severity of the whole situation seemed like, the first time was like, okay, maybe it was, everything just happened so quick. And uh, just the timing, maybe him down in the localizer. The second one, that's when we knew there was, the issue was more severe than we thought. Yeah. And uh, that's when we started asking questions. He said, I'm really getting bumped around here. I think he said something about his avionics and maybe his gyro. And uh, prior to this, you know, David was getting all the information from Frederick, the weather, the uh, fuel conditions and stuff like that. But prior to him shooting his third approach, we have a winds aloft. That's when we knew there was a problem with the winds. And they were so severe. They were like 120 out of 50 at 3,000 feet. Wow. So, okay. That's when we knew we should take him out further as far as we could and bring in more of a straight in approach and more for like, and we, I didn't know at the time, was he flying it by hand or autopilot? So I thought maybe so severe that it just, he's getting pushed for the localizer that we take him out outside of the initial approach fix and that the autopilot would capture, you know, the initial approach fix to the localizer. Yeah. Talk to me about the coordination with you and, David, what was his position? What was your position? And wh- why are you guys coordinating? What are you doing? Well, initially when he came in, Andrew, I put it on the scope here. We, we have a function that we can put. And initially it's a EM function. And I put that in his call sign and on his data tag and, in, and it'll show emergency. So everybody in the building now notices there's a problem. And that's when everybody starts coming over. So that's when David comes over and that's when he gets involved. Okay. So that was really more, he just saw that you're handling a pretty high demand traffic here. You got a situation going and he just comes over to assist. That's part of the procedures you guys have there at uh, Potomac. Right. Yes. So from a controller standpoint, help us out with this. You're the primary controller. David comes in and says he can assist, just happens to be your brother, which is a pretty cool part of the story. Talk to us about that. I, was, I wasn't aware that that sort of exists at a Tracon where you can say, hey, I've got a, a, an emergency, need some help, and people come over. Um, how do you divide that work effort? Who does what? Talk us through that a little bit. Well, I mean, it's case-by-case basis, really, and it depends okay. on the workload. At that time, really, I didn't have that much traffic going on. It was kind of like the end of the rival bank for Dulles, and uh, not that many GA aircraft were flying around. So... When I put that in hit 
in his scratch pad. That EM function, everybody in the whole building and our whole building sees that there's a problem. And that's when people start listening in, they come over, what's happening, we need this information. David probably maybe even heard me talking to this, you know, because you just hear when you're in the building and you have coworkers working beside you, you can just hear a certain, either the voice change or certain things that they might ask and like, okay, he's got a problem, you know. So let's pick it up from there. David, you see this in your scratch pad that your fellow controller, your brother has got a uh, emergency going on and your workload is such that you can go over and help talk us through that from your standpoint as kind of an assistant here in this situation. What did you do? Can I, if I can cut in real quick again, Yeah. David was working a flight data position. And when I put that in the scratch pad, he's not working at a scope, but every scope in the whole building will have that on that aircraft. I mean, just any scope in the whole building, you would see a red, there's an emergency message in his call sign. So, okay. He wasn't actually working a position, a controlling position. It's a flight data position. That makes sense. You wouldn't drop a controller position to come over. You know? Right, right, right. So, yeah, that makes sense. So he's in a flight data position, and then he comes over to assist you. And, David, can you pick it up from there? What do you do in that scenario? Yeah, well, I mean, I, it, it was pretty slow at that time. You, like Eric had said, the, um, the rival bank for Dulles had pretty much ended. So it's just some lingering traffic here and there. Eric hadn't really been that busy. And then you hear, like Eric said, some trigger words like, what's the nature of the, uh, the issue or, you know, emergency or stuff like that. And it's only a few trigger words that you hear that really sets the tone of what he might have an issue going on or really not even him, anyone, in, you know, that's sitting beside me. I'm working the flight data position, which really is a non-control position. You're just assisting with uh, flight progress trips and routes for other controllers. I, I believe Eric had reached out to me about getting information in Manassas, if, you know, because they're advertising, I believe, north, uh, landing north at Manassas. So three, four left, three, four right, and three, four right being their RNAV approach. But I, I think they more want it in ILS into Manassas. So I initially started coordinating that for Manassas. And then shortly thereafter, I noticed that he had the issue with, with an aircraft. And I went over to him and started asking him questions. And it was an aircraft in question. And you started going from there, figuring out what the issue was, which he had said he had you know, possibly ingested ice, where he was diverting to. That was going to be Frederick. Frederick was by far the closest and best choice as far as to get on the ground, towered airport. So it seems like that. Fortunately, there wasn't a lot of traffic in the area, so you could come over and provide assistance, and you are both a private pilot and have been a controller for 15 years, so you can kind of anticipate the questions that Eric's going to ask or the things that he may need, so you're just kind of feeding him information to, to just help him stay focused on the uh, aircraft in distress. Is that accurate? Oh, 100%, yes. Um, you know, you heard the trigger questions fuel cells on board, um, stuff like that. And that's, here. anyone ask that, you know, the next step is it's pretty much an emergency aircraft or soon to be emergency aircraft. If the pilot hasn't declared or you declare for him, I believe the pilot did declare, regardless, I'm 100% Eric would have declared, the pilot didn't declare. Yeah. <laughs> you heard those trigger questions, and at that point, you know, okay, well, I'm gonna, I got to start coordinating with Frederick. At the same point, our, our supervisor, Fred Keefe, had listened in. He immediately starts plugging in and listening to Eric. He's also running the floor, too, you know, everything with the floor. So I start coordinating with Frederick. 
Nice. So you can just listen in on how Eric's controlling him and what the pilots are requesting. Yeah. And then so Eric doesn't have to pick up the phone, and which would be the normal case, right? He would probably pick yeah. up the phone and do that. You're, ta- you're taking that workload off of him and listening in and just doing all that back-end coordination. Yeah. Um, normally on a normal day, um, working that position, Eric would, you know, if he had an inbound for Frederick, would call him the inbound, let him know where he's at, clear him for the approach, and be on his way. You know, Frederick knows he's inbound and all that, but day like that day, January 16th, emergency, a little bit different. And, you know, I called in the inbound, what, 1520 Northeast and ILS 23 called, said, you know, possible engine failure and just ice and all that. At the same time, I was trying to get field conditions because at Dulles, you know, they had FICON readings, which are, you know, are the new breaking action advisory. So each FICON rating has different amounts of accumulation or breaking action advisory. So it, it, it correlates both. Frederick had nothing. Well, I mean, nothing. They had no reports available. Not aircraft had landed. And I'm like, okay, so how much snow did you get? You know, how did they treat the runways? Uh, I'm not sure. I got to call the airport manager. And so they're getting on the phone with the manager. And she's like, I, they don't know. And then she had eventually confirmed later that there was no pre-treatment of the runway. So that, at that point, I said, well, if you were to walk outside, how much snow would you estimate on the sidewalk in front of the tower? And I think she said, yeah, between three to five inches and, you know, untreated. So a mix of snow, sleet, possibly ice and rain, untreated runway, and, you know, just figuring all that out. We knew the ILS was up. That was their preferred. They have no instrument approach to land north at the moment. I think the RNF-5 is out of service. It's been out for a while. Right. It is because they extended the runway. So they're waiting on the, you know, they're waiting on the approach approval. That's right. Yeah. So that's, uh, you know, that's another dynamic is just based on uh, where the winds, at least at altitude, are coming from pretty strong from, you know, the southeast. So he's got a left quartering tailwind which is, you know, contributing to being pushed across that uh, localizer course at, you know, I think you said 50 knots, uh, Eric, earlier. So let's go back uh, to Drew. So last time, you know, we, we heard from you, you were coming down into your first approach, you were being vectored to the localizer. And it sounds like that really strong wind coming out of the southeast and your turbulence, and you're worried about your engine problem, pick it up from there. What, what happened on that first approach there? Yeah. Uh, first of all, those gentlemen, their their account and the coordination there. Uh, you know, uh, some of that for me. I, the the thing I was queuing off was the whole thing was was Eric's voice again. Uh, just a cool hand, Luke, on on basically just try and talk me through it. It, it was so bumpy, single piloted. I was barely able to get everything established in the cockpit to take that first approach. So just time, space, distance was not uh, allowing me to do that. And uh, I was thinking the same thing he was uh, as far as the turn, you know, always, you always hate turning away from the, from the airfield, but I knew that the ILS uh, was my best chance to get through that weather and get the longest runway there. He did explain to me when we finally made those turns and he did a phenomenal job boxing me in like I would old school. I, I know he was thinking about the risk of going away from the field, but, but that time he built in there for me, allowed me to get, uh, get a good wind correction in, get adjusted, and then uh, basically uh, fly that course into the ILS, into Frederick. And then, you know, I knew at that point, once I maintained the, the course and, and the, the glide slope, that I would be able to take that, that approach to a successful termination to MINS uh, into Frederick. And, uh, you know, 
I was really focused on flying the airplane, not looking outside. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife is a, is a really good uh, observer and indicated to her, you know, the second you see those rabbit lights, uh, make sure. And uh, as I'm doing that, Eric is giving me updates on the conditions there. He did indicate that the runway had not been plowed or treated. I accepted that. I, you know, uh, I was less concerned about sliding off the runway than at least I knew, uh, you know, our best chance to have a successful outcome was to, to get into that runway environment where everyone was, uh, was there. My wife says uh, she saw the rabbit lights and the fire trucks. Uh, I can tell you that uh, I didn't see either until she annotated. Uh, and when I looked up, all I saw was the rabbit lights and was able to make a, uh, uh, a safe landing. And on that runway, there was probably, uh, like, like the gentleman said, uh, there was at least three inches of snow you know, on the runway uh, when, I, when I was able to, uh, to taxi off. Was it down to, did you have to fly that approach down to about minimums? I did. I flew that approach just, you know, very, very close to Min's there. And the wind factor of just trying to keep it, uh, you know, aligned was really challenging, very, very challenging conditions. Yeah. And for, for sure, uh, I can tell you for 100%, uh, I landed, uh, you know, I, I switched over to uh, to tower at that point. I did not make the switch again uh, with my hands on the controls. Uh, I knew Eric had me. I knew that I was already flagged as uh, as an emergency aircraft. So I was confident his communications uh, with Frederick were happening. I, uh, I I stayed on that until I made a successful uh, landing. And then I, uh, I switched over to the Frederick Tower. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, they asked me, uh, you know, was I able to taxi off under my own power? All of that kind of stuff, no issue. And the airport manager actually set up a nice spot for us to taxi in front of uh, the FBO. And, and I was able to do that and then, uh, uh, you know, talk to the tower, please relay to Potomac, get me a phone number so I could call them and uh, additionally uh, thank them for, for their assistance. And, you know, obviously a, a successful outcome, uh, you know, 100% Eric and crew. So let me go back to your vectored around on final. You got it nice and stable. You got a really strong crosswind coming from your left side. It was 50 knots at 3,000 feet, I think, is what uh, Eric or David said. As you come down on that approach now, did it stay in that general direction? So in my mind, you got a couple of things. You got several things going on. You've got to fly an approach down to minimums in what is with a rough running engine, sleet, icing conditions, and not only do you have to fly an approach in that with the turbulence going on, once you finally see the runway, now you've got to land in a crosswind like that, not only in a crosswind like that, but with a runway that's not cleared of ice or snow. So you got multiple factors here. Talk me through that whole, once you finally break out, you couldn't afford to breathe a sigh of relief. <laughs> you've got to focus on this. Did the wind stay from that direction? Did you have that strong quartering tailwind coming there? Richard, I'm, I'm going to tell you, I, I broke out at minimums at the rabbit lights and uh, the Sokata airplanes, for whatever reason, I think because they're European, they really are good in high wind conditions. They have a little bit higher ability to, uh, to take more of a crosswind. 25 knots is what the plane can take. So I noticed I was crabbing a little bit. I adjusted. And at that point, uh, I was just tracking to go to the center line and align the aircraft in the position there for uh, a safe landing. So I, I don't think I was really focused at that point, um, what the wind was doing. Uh, you know, yeah. the airplane still had, uh, it was still performing. You know, everything was set up correctly from, from that perspective. And, uh, you know, and so I, I don't really call, uh, I mean, I didn't even see the crash fire rescue trucks. Uh, my wife yeah. saw those, yeah. all I saw was the rabbit lights 
And then the runway lights were light, lit up beautifully in that snowy condition. Uh, so it was quite apparent how to get right onto center line. So I suspect you told us earlier you have a little over 5,000 hours of total flying time and a lot of different airplanes and conditions. And I suspect at that point when you broke out, instinct took over. You didn't pay attention to the winds. You just knew they were manageable because you could get it on the ground and manage with that. Obviously, the snow and ice or slush or whatever didn't cause you too much issues because you kept it under control. Yeah, I would say that's fair. Yes, sir. Yeah. So, Eric, let me go back to you. So he's now on the approach. You can see that you've, you've got him on the approach and he's stable coming down the approach. It had to be a good feeling for you to see him tracking the glide slope and coming down, you know, stable on the approach. Yes. On the third approach, after the first two one, the first approach, which everything happened so quick. So we didn't know if he wasn't prepared for it or at the time. And then the second one. After the second approach, and that's what kind of really determined that, hey, we need to really take him out. He, and he mentioned that he was getting bumped around, but we just thought it was turbulence in the air. We didn't realize that the winds were, I think knowing the winds aloft 120 at 50 at 3,000 feet, that's when we're like, it's just pushing him through the localizer. So we're going to take him all the way past the initial approach fix. And uh, I told him to tune in Numby. Now, I don't know if he flew by hand to Numby or the autopilot. So I was thinking maybe the autopilot would capture it. I wasn't sure the situation, how that was working. I just knew that if we took him out further, bring him more for a straight in approach, that would help with the wind. Yeah. But on the first two approaches, we, we didn't know about the wind. We just knew about the winds at Frederick Airport, which and I believe were like 340 at 9 or something like that, 340 at 11. Wow, okay. That's what they were calling it. Yeah, but at altitude, two and even at 2,000 feet, I think it was 120 at 39. Well, there's your turbulence, right? One, at 3,000 feet, 120 at 50. Yeah. And then by the time you get to the surface, 340 at 9 or 10 or whatever it was. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the huge determining factor doing what we did at the third approach. Yeah. And, and he said he was, yeah. after the second one, that's when I think was brought up about the avionics or the gyro. And he was really getting tossed around. Yeah. And I think that's when David went back and looked on, we have a little computer back there. And I'll tell you, over the VORs in certain areas, around the airspace, what the winds aloft are. That was a huge determining factor of doing what we did that night. And that, just that little essay is in essence why David came over to assist you, is to be there for those kinds of things, to feed you that kind of information. Yes. He just picks up, right? He knows he's got experience. He goes to look at and, ah, there's the issue. We gotta, we gotta accommodate these winds. Yeah. And that's why I told Andrew when we talked on the phone later, he's, you know, thank you so, he thanked me so much. And I said, I'm just glad you landed. I said, but it really was a team effort. And not to make it corny or anything, it really was a team effort because all the information that David was doing with the Frederick Tower, getting the weather and the field conditions, and they called it. Uh, another big thing was turning the uh, the runway lights and uh, the approach lights all the way up to the max intensity. So they wanted him to be able to see, you know. Yeah. Didn't matter if they were too bright or what. I think he'd rather see the airport. So, yeah, that's huge. Those little things make such a big difference, you know, to, to yeah. think, to know that you're going to need them at the highest intensity and make sure that's there. And, you know, that could make the difference to see in the runway or not at minimum. So, um, oh, fantastic. Even our supervisor was sitting in, you know, he came and plugged in and we're discussing just what we could do to help him. And we just kind of collaborated and just, okay, we're going to take him out, set him up straight in, try and dial him in, maybe. I don't, I don't know, Andrew, if, if you the last approach, the autopilot 
did you go or did you fly it manually? I flew the uh, I flew the pattern manually, and obviously every time uh, you rolled up, I, you know I used the wet compass, and then I made sure the RMI com card was aligned just to make sure I was I was in a tight pattern, and and I did use the I, I coupled you can you can see where I, I coupled the autopilot to just keep the altitude steady, just so I could just at least get my hand free to make a couple of switch changes and put in those points you had given me. So let me ask you: you hand him off to Tower. Eric, as he's coming down approach, right? You say contact tower or did he stay with you the whole way? I believe I cleared him to land and we kind of lost comms at a certain point. And I was like, I don't know at this point, am I being a hindrance to him, you know, trying to give him information? I know he's trying to fly this plane. So is that one of those things? Um, we cleared him to land and, uh, you know, we coordinate with the tower. They said that, you know, he's clear to land. And uh, I don't know if he heard me. We kind of lost comms inside of the final approach fix. So that's one thing that we used to do in the military was we would ask for when we had an emergency that was this demanding on the pilot. And, you know, we can all be clear, this was a just an extremely demanding situation for the pilot with that turbulence and that wind shear at altitude and a rough running engine. And, you know, it's uh, heading cards now starting to, you know, act up. But we would ask for a single frequency approach, which takes one more task away from the pilot. I don't have to, especially in turbulence, try to reach for my knob and get the frequency set. I'm going to stay on this single frequency all the right. way to touchdown. And you know, it seems, seems like to me that was a good thing here that you had him just stay with you and you took care of that landing clearance. Yes. And from, from my perspective, 100%. That was just another thing. He gave me the clear to land. I could hear the chatter in the background there. And uh, there was just, you know, in my mind, it, it was 15, 20 seconds, which seemed like an eternity. As I picked up those rabbit lights, you know, I'm thinking in my head as a pilot, I should switch to tower. He gave me the clear to land. And I'm like, you know what, at this point, if I'm going to get yelled at, I, I can I can take the hit for that because uh, the coordination at that point had been seamless. And I, I did actually feel like he was uh, at that point, saying, "Hey, I've given you all the information, the best of our abilities here. Uh, it's up to me to take it that last little bit." So I 100, uh, you know, felt confident that that's what he was doing for me. So let me ask you this, Eric and David, both. At some point, you said you kind of lose communications with him. I'm not sure if you can see the radar track that low or not, but at some point, you're not exactly sure how this thing ended, right? So you're sitting there, uh, somewhat in a cone of silence. How did you learn that he landed safely and it worked? Well, on the, on the radar, there's a function that we can put where we can hold the, the track with the beacon. So even if something were to happen, we would know where the plane was at the last point of uh, radar contact. It would show that position. David, at that time, was on the, the landline with Frederick Tower. And at the time, we're, we're trying to, the, the, the controller from Frederick Tower was saying, I see him. I see his lights. And David can take over from here because I'm not sure everything that she said. Yeah, she she had a lot to say. Uh, she definitely saw her lights. Uh, saw his lights, and um, she was you know surprised that he was going to make it. You know, she had a. They don't have an ARFF there, so they had to call nine one one for basically any emergency services. They didn't have anything on the airfield as far as that. So they came from outside there to have them prepared, and she was as much surprised as we were that he actually made it because his you just watching on the radar when you watch it you're like i don't think he's gonna make it mm. and you know when she said that he she sees his lights is a little bit of comfort but you know it just because you see his lights you know that low yeah 
you're hoping he makes it. And of course he did. And it was a huge sigh of relief. Yeah, you're telling me, Dave. <laughs> and then you turn over to Eric and say, he's down, he's he's safe. Oh, yeah. yeah. So there, there's these coordination boxes above. There are probably four or five positions. They're called the score position, the coordinator positions. And there's each box. And you, could, you have communication functions with just about every position we could even think of between all the different adjacent sectors, towers, centers, and all that, just to coordinate everything. And I was the box right above him and he, he hears me talking and so he, you know he's down and you know it's a huge sigh really because it wasn't just eric and i watching or our soup it, there was a good good 10 if not you know 15 other people watching right throughout the whole bit. yeah they knew at, at potomac tracon they just knew that this was a stressful situation and a pilot was in distress and so oh, yeah. but i imagine in, in my mind's eye you can tell me how accurate this is you're intense on this one airplane. He goes down to land. You get the call. He's on the ground safely. You look at each other. He's on the ground safely. Everybody smiles for five seconds. And then you go, okay, Navy on five, three, one, eight kilo turn left. You know, you just go back to doing your jobs because you're so busy over there. Yeah. So let's go back through and talk some lessons learned from this entire experience, both from a pilot perspective and a controller perspective. Drew, I'd like to start with you. As you look back on the whole scenario, can you walk us through, like, what do you take away from this? You know, unfortunately, there's not enough time on this podcast uh, for, for me to do that. Um, you know, uh, you know, I debrief every one of my flights. I, I talk about my landings, my procedures. And, uh, you know, you, you hate when you don't read the signs out there correctly or the forecast uh, is wrong. The winds are way out of, uh, of what you're expecting. So, you know, the, the number one thing I can say to all pilots is, you know, my, it makes my young burgeoning pilot children think about, you know, always checking the weather, always checking the fuel, always making sure that you are setting yourself up for success. I, I went through the weather conditions, uh, you know, what I was trying to accomplish that day, and uh, it, it was suboptimal, and uh, I should have made the, the decision. Uh, if there's a doubt, there is no doubt. You, you don't go. So that was, a, you know, that was the first one. I, I could have done a much better assessment on that. Uh, you know, once I had crossed into the, the conditions that started to go bad, I, there was potential that I, I could have asked to divert to another airfield. Uh, I have to agree with those gentlemen that really Frederick was my only option uh, just from a towered field. Uh, I didn't know that they didn't have crash fire rescue, but I, you know, I knew that they had an ILS, that a nice long runway and, uh, you know, the ability to do that. I, I'm beating myself up with, uh, you know, Dave uh, has already, uh, you know, indicated, you know, you, you always hate pulling all these people off the line to for a single GA airplane to do this. But there's no doubt in my mind that the coordination between Eric and I totally made the situation workable. It 100% team effort from those folks. But his calming voice allowed me to have uh, a little bit better situation awareness. I could have confessed earlier my issue with the card. I don't think I recognized that early enough. Obviously, the approach was too fast uh, the first time, and I knew it was too fast, and I should have communicated to him, unable, uh, you know, box me out, and, and that could have averted some of the drama, I think, uh, had we done that. And then, you know, in your pilot's mind, that engine problem is the number one problem in your mind. In reality, uh, you know, aviate, navigate, communicate, you know, the plane was, was flying I needed to focus a little bit more on the navigation uh, to make sure that that I was established correctly and the communication piece. I, I 
I could have done a better job communicating what I was seeing, what was going on. Uh, you know, the turbulence uh, and, and, and the winds obviously were insane, uh, not, not forecast like that at that level. Um, so, uh, you know, again, that was an unknown to me at that point. And then, uh, you know, I think um, the, the, the last piece there of just, uh, you know, his continued patience. My wife commented, you know, uh, you know, is that guy a military controller? Because he was just so calm and collected on the radio. And uh, I cannot thank the team enough for that effort as far as that. And, and I did. I, I do want to say, though, at the end, you know, I called Potomac Tracon. I talked to their supervisor, Fred, and, you know, the first thing Fred said was, uh, you know, man, you know, really classy to call or something like that. I'm like, are you kidding me? These guys were rock stars. And uh, and he's like, hey, do you want to talk to Eric? And, uh, you know, what do you say to the guy who uh, who saved you? So uh, thank you. Yeah. Great lessons to learn there. Eric, let me go to you next. What do you look at from lessons learned from either a controller standpoint or, or any position? Well, when this was going on, the first one, we didn't really think anything, the first approach, but the second and third, I remember me and Fred, we said to each other, he's so calm. We just thought he should be a lot more nervous than he is. And he just seemed like everything was fine, like like it was just another, you know, and he was just going with us and we just kind of made a plan. And uh, I just remember saying that many times, he seems really calm, you know. <laughs> But as far as the whole situation goes, it's teamwork. That would be what I would have to say. It's not just this one situation. It happens a lot at Potomac. We get situations that we're put into. And the best thing is the more ears, the more eyes, the more teamwork that you have, the better outcome that you'll have. Yeah. My observation from you guys at Potomac is just using the resources that are available. They weren't, they're not always available where you have that much effort, but on this day it was, and you utilized all of that for a successful outcome. That's 100%. Yeah. The resources, the winds aloft were huge to know that. And we didn't know that the first two approaches before the third approach, once we found that out, that determined a lot more Yeah. for the third approach. That's when we decided, Hey, we're going to take him out as far as we could without it being too far. And that was such a great call on your part that, hey, let's just let's just build in some breathing room. Let's give him a little bit longer. And you can even hear him in his mind saying that was such a relief to him to. All right. Just give me a little more time here to get this thing because it's so tumultuous inside the cockpit. Now, David, let me ask you the same question. That was a key piece of information for everybody that you found. What other lessons learned do you have for the scenario? Like you said, that was a big one. As far as the winds aloft, it really played a role, I guess, in the third approach. Eric and I both just got to our shifts that evening, two, three o'clock-ish. And so Dulles arrivals come in, they land around three to four, and I had worked the final position at Dulles. And basing aircraft, you know, they're heading south to land north at Dulles, they're heading south to point to turn northbound. You turn west, and when you turn west with that tailwind, I never base an aircraft generally at Dulles at 170 knots, you know, 15, 20 miles from the airport. But when they're 170 knots and their ground speed, you know, what we're showing on the radar is showing 220, 230. I had took that little bit of information that I had worked just an hour or two earlier, you know, just knowing the weather. Um, I know coming coming into that night and doing our weather briefing prior to our shift that, you know, it was going to be icing turbulence and you know low visibility and stuff like that and believe it or not shortly thereafter i think five six o'clock or later it wasn't much later you know the the storm had passed through to an extent where it was clear 
So I would, I'd add one more, uh, Drew, and that is, I wonder, I wonder how this scenario would have been if you hadn't have had your wife in there with you to be a supportive uh, crew member, really, in passing you information and approach plates or whatever it was. It seems like to me that was another key ingredient to the successful outcome of this flight was having her there and her being engaged and active in her support. Yeah, she's a, she's a, a great, you know, uh, non-flying pilot in the airplane there. I ask her every year if she wants to get her pilot's license and she's just happy to be flying. Um, you know, she knows uh, with my experience and the way I communicate, I'm very open in my communication with her, what I'm doing, verbalizing. So, you know, safety is always paramount in civilian flying. And, uh, you know, so I, I appreciate that. And yeah, she was a big help and a stabilizing force as well. And uh, like I said, I, I can't thank everyone enough in this. And I, I have told the, you know, the Potomac folks, I would love to come down and, uh, and do some pilot controller training just to use this as an example of a, a suboptimal situation that had a good outcome. And the teamwork was just absolutely incredible. Well, let me ask you this. After you landed, did you ever determine the roughness of the engine? Did that stay throughout the flight? Did it end up going away? And did you figure out that was icing? It ended up going away. And, uh, you know, when I got on the runway, I was I was thinking, you know, hey, am I just shutting down or so there was no sluggish. It went out there. Uh, the guy taxied us out. I shut down. The first thing I did after I kissed my wife and Hunter was I hopped outside the front of the plane to get a picture uh, of the prop of the, the wing route just to see, you know, what was going on. And the prop was clean. The wings were clean. You could see where some slush was, you know, maybe accumulating in the bottom of the, the intake, but I just got the airplane back with, uh, you know, t- took it down to my, uh, my A&P and uh, he, you know, er- er- it run up, checked up good, you know, a couple small things, but no, yes, sir. A- a- absolutely. And throughout this, you never had any ice accumulate on your wings or your tail. So that was no, not a factor. None whatsoever. Good. good. Well, gentlemen, this is a fantastic story. There's so many lessons learned that came out of this. And I want to thank you, Drew, for sharing your story and Eric and David for joining us. And uh, just let me take this opportunity to thank the controllers out there who every day get in countless situations that they help GA pilots. And we don't give you guys enough thanks and enough credit for what you do. And just thank you so much for the job that you do for us every day to keep GA safe. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Well, a demanding scenario. And I live in Frederick, Maryland. I remember the incident well, and I remember the evening of the weather that this flight happened. So much came out of this. We learned about single frequency approaches. We learned about no gyro approaches. Both of those can be helpful to a pilot under stressful and demanding situations. I also liked how Eric talked about he could have said unable, box me out was his terminology. And it's a reminder that controllers are doing the best they can, but they oftentimes don't know if they're giving you something that you can't abide by or would be best if you didn't. So that terminology, unable, when you're helping communicate to them what's in your your both best interest there can be a helpful terminology. And then the final scenario of that coordination between Drew and his wife and her help in that situation where it was nice to have a helping in, even just to hand over an approach plate. So a lot of lessons learned came out of this. And obviously the big one is the weather and the whole analysis of the weather and the forecast in front of Drew on the uh, late afternoon, early evening that he took that flight. And I'm sure, as he mentioned, that's a lesson learned that he takes with him for future flights. A demanding scenario, 
We're so thankful for the controllers and all they do for us every day and in this situation help make a stressful situation turn out safely. I'm your host, Richard McSpadden, alongside our producer, David O'Leary. Until next time, fly safe. Hey, listeners, if you like these podcasts and you'd like to help us continue providing them, please consider a donation to help our efforts. Go to aopafoundation.org slash donate. That's aopafoundation, all one word, dot org slash donate. And thanks for your support. There I Was is produced by the AOPA Air Safety Institute. If you'd like to hear other episodes, submit comments, or submit your own story to potentially be featured on the show, please visit airsafetyinstitute.org slash there I was. Thanks for listening. <laughs>